Good morning, everyone. And the warmest greetings from your friends and brethren at Boston Lake in these most unusual times. It's a little humbling, isn't it, when we discover how dependent we are on our modern conveniences like electricity and other things. Uh, we got our power back on pretty soon, but I understand a lot of you. Uh, is anyone still without power in the congregation? Does it all come back? Well, I noticed uh, in the electronic bulletin that I have been promoted to the rank of pastor. Um, <clears throat> I'm still just plain old Rob. And I, I am an electrical engineer, and uh, that will become evident pretty soon. But I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm thankful to be able to stand before my friends, some of you I've known for a long time, others not so long, as we uh, open the scriptures together. When I do preach, I've been preaching through the book of Acts, uh, brother, as you have done many years ago, and one of my favorite passages of, of all the book of Acts, really of all the scriptures, is in the second chapter that we're all so familiar with. And I want to take a, another look at Acts chapter 2 this morning as we open the scriptures. There's a hymn we love to sing that says, Breathe thou upon us, Lord, our spirit's living flame, that so with one accord our lips may tell thy name. Give thou the hearing ear, fix thou the wandering thought, that those we teach may hear the great things thou hast wrought. That's an excellent preparation for preaching and for hearing the word of God, and it fits so well with our text this morning. We come to chapter 2 of what we might call Luke, volume 2, the book of Acts, or the book of the Holy Spirit, as we might want to call it. In chapter 1, you might remember that the 40 days that the Lord Jesus appeared before the apostles and the witnesses has come and gone and now the Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven in a miraculous and magnificent display of his power and is received into the clouds as the disciples watched him go the dreadful episode of Judas Iscariot is now settled and the rank of the apostolate is now back to twelve and the 10 days between the 40 days of the Lord Jesus' in the flesh presence in the world post-resurrection and the 50 days that the, that the day of Pentecost marks, that 10-day window is now drawing to a close. And we see the church now in her earliest days, at the very beginning, she's gathered for earnest for faithfully attended prayer. That's one of the things we derive from Acts chapter 1. Her names are recorded. The original language makes it plain that they had a record of who was there in that upper room and their names were known. Her membership is known and recognized. Her heart is unified. They are of the same mind and committed to the same Purpose. What a wonderful beginning for any church, especially the early church. May we strive to be like her in every way. Let us stay on those old 
paths, those apostolic paths that are shown by example to us in these opening chapters of the book of Acts, there is no better model for what a church ought to be than the apostolic early church. Sure, she had her problems and they solved them. But brethren, we're not wiser than the apostles. We don't have a better idea beyond that which was established by the Lord Jesus in his building of the church and the apostolic practices of the book of Acts. It's certain that some of those practices are unique to that age. I understand that. But their basic fundamental organizations and the way they worshiped and what they did in worship are just as relevant today as they were on day one. We believe now that all human history pivots. If there's a, a fulcrum, a pivot point for human history, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. But that cross became known to the world starting on the day of Pentecost. We wonder how much the gospel would have prospered if the day of Pentecost had never occurred and the Holy Spirit had never descended into the world. But that day is now at hand. The immersion, the, the baptism of the early church into the spirit of Jesus Christ is the most transformative act to take place in human history. Its effects are world-changing. They've changed your life, whether you realize it or not. The planting of the early church in Jerusalem changed the course of human history forever. And its effects are still powerfully known. No election, no war, no edict or decree can ever have the impact of the day of Pentecost. It is an amazing amazing event more important more of an impact than than anything than even Noah's flood turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2 if you're not already there and I'm going to read the first 13 verses for us and don't be alarmed by the length of the passage it it will not be uh, completely covered this morning when the day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing him speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. I practiced these names. I've read them a number of times so I wouldn't mess this up. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and 
and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, they're full of sweet wine. Well, let's take a look at some of this in a, in a little bit of detail. We read first of the day of Pentecost. What is the day of Pentecost? Well, it's one of the three primary Jewish feats that all of the, of the citizenry of Israel, the, especially the men, the descendants of Jacob, were required to come in pilgrimage to Jerusalem and celebrate these three feasts. And the day of Pentecost, the feast of Pentecost is one of them. The first is the feast of the Passover, which has rich New Testament symbolism. The liberation of the nation of the Hebrews from Egypt. Those who were God's enemies were distinguished from those who were God's people by the blood of the Lamb that was posted on their doorposts. There was a difference made between the world and the people of God on the Passover, the first Passover. There was also the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, where the uh, great Day of Atonement took place, Yom Kippur, where the high priest would enter into the holy place with that sacrificial blood of the lamb, the Paschal lamb, and bring that blood into the holy place. Clearly, enormous New Testament symbolism going on in that feast. But then we have the Feast of Pentecost, or it's also called the Feast of Weeks, that celebrated the early first harvest, the ingathering of the harvest wheat into the barn. And all these feasts were done annually, every year. And each one of them pointed to rock-solid New Testament realities that are, that are unrepeatable, that happened once in history. So these annual reminders was preparing the nation for the realities that would be once for all. Now the day of Pentecost is prescribed in Leviticus 23.15. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover feast, from the day when you brought the sheaf and the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths, seven weeks, 49 days. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and there you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So the design of Pentecost was this ingathering of wheat into the barn. You shall observe the feast, says Moses in Exodus 23, of the harvest of first fruits from your labors which you sow in the field. Now in verse 1, the text says when the day of Pentecost had come, but the original language is much richer. It says when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, or rather to fill up completely. It means so much more than just the, the calendar day had arrived. It, it, you can liken it to your wedding day. 
when your wedding day arrives, you don't get out of bed and say, well, it's Saturday today. Wonder what'll happen today. No, no, it's, it's a day of, of, of the fulfillment of planning and preparation where something great is going to happen. It has been completely filled up on this last symbolic day of Pentecost. And there's a direct New Testament covenant to these old covenant obligations. The new covenant reality of the ingathering of God's wheat, his, his church, into his barn is being fulfilled that day. And the oft-repeated annual feast, their symbolic significance terminates on this last Pentecost celebration when it is being completely filled up or fulfilled. The ingathering is at hand. And, and there's, there's, there's wisdom from God to marvel over in these Old Testament structures that serve as clay models for the realities of the New Covenant. The symbolism is, is rich and we're watching it unfold here with the Feast of Weeks, the Feast uh, of the Pentecost. So, we know that the Passover feast is brimming with New, new Testament significance. So is the, uh, the Feast of Booze with the Day of Atonement, and now certainly the Day of Pentecost. All these New Testament realities of the birth of the church and how, how convenient it is. Remember what the Great Commission said that the, the task of the apostles was to do? To bring the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth? Well, how convenient then that on Pentecost Day, the whole world would come to Jerusalem. What a great way to start off this commissioned exercise of spreading the gospel around the world and to have the world come to you on this inaugural day of the Pentecost celebration. So now this final substance, the real thing, is going to replace the types and shadows of the old covenant model. Now, I think it should be clear now what day of the week that that Pentecost celebration occurs. It's the day after the seventh Jewish Sabbath, which would be falling on a Saturday, the day after would be the first day of the week. Again, how significant that the church came into being on the same day that the Lord Jesus, the same day of the week, rose from the dead. There's a hymn again that we like to sing, On Thee, at the creation, the light first had its birth, right? The, day, the light came into being in Genesis 1 on, if we're marking days, a Sunday. And on thee for our salvation, Christ rose from depths of earth. His resurrection was on a Sunday. And on thee, our Lord victorious, the Spirit was sent from heaven the day of Pentecost. And the hymn writer calls that a triple light that was given to mark the first day of the week. Well, let's look now. We've, that's so much for the, the day of Pentecost and where it came from and what it means. 
What about the gathered assembly there? What were they like? Well, we read from chapter 1 in verse 4. Gathering them together, Jesus says, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you've heard from me. Now, if you only have to read John 14 to understand that the Lord Jesus informed them about the helper who was to come. They should, they should have that in their minds as to what they're waiting for. And we observe in our text today, in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. So the first thing to note about the early church was their obedience, their attention to the tale, what the Lord Jesus had commanded them to do. They were exactly doing it. They were in the right place, Jerusalem. They were at the right time on Pentecost Sunday, and they were in the right frame of mind. I wonder how the church in our day would be patient to wait 10 days for something that they weren't sure quite what to expect in the first place. Well, this early church was obedient to the Lord Jesus' command. And note the condition of the gathered church. Those 120 in that upper room there was not a false individual among them to be found in that upper room. The Spirit of God rested upon each one of them. The language is very clear, without exception. Men and women together, there was no distinction as to sex. They were all treated alike. And this is the only instant, my brothers, when the church of Jesus Christ was perfectly pure. Not one false son in her pale, not one enemy lurking underneath the covers. There was a perfect church at that stage in history. It didn't last forever. We only have to get to chapter 5 to see that. But on that day, and that, I think that probably that only day, the church of Jesus Christ was perfectly pure. Every single name in that congregation was a genuine article, which is an amazing thing to note. But that's not all. Remember the description in chapter 1. Again, going back to chapter 1 at verse 14. These all with one mind. The word there is homothumadon, a, a same passion. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. A, a like-mindedness, no, no division, no subterranean quarrels going on under the surface, no jealousies or envies hidden. They were of one mind. That, that, that's the way it is here, isn't it? You, you hope that it is. We want it to be. We don't want to have a church where there's this undertone of division and mistrust or envy or jealousy. We want that like passion that the early church had in our congregation. No under-the-surface grumbling. 
And the text there has an interesting combination of words when it says that they were gathered together. The word in this literal translation says they were all together, together. They were all together, together. It describes a, a confederation of purpose. It's only used that I could find three times in the New Testament. It's used in two occasions to describe the Lord's enemies who were very unlikely confederates, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were together, together in their opposition to the Lord Jesus. There was a uniformity of purpose in a, in a negative, sinful way. And Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 7 to describe the marital union. So we can, think, we can gather from that that it means a whole lot more than just being in the same room together. That they just happen to be in one place at a certain time. Which is a way, brothers, if we're not careful, we, we tend to look at our own worship services. But we're all here. We're all in the same room together. That's not a church. A church is where a gathered assembly meets in, the, in a, to use the original word, a homothumadon, a, a, a like purpose devoted to prayer with the Holy Ghost brooding over the congregation. That, that is a church, not just being in the same room. Well, they were all together, together, not one missing, all on the same page, ready for the fulfillment of the promise of the Father, not, not knowing really what to expect, but they know something significant is going to happen within a few days, as the Lord Jesus said. Well, that brings us then to this, the, the, the super interesting, the uber interesting part of the text, where we now read about this violent rushing wind and the tongues of fire. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Well now put yourself there. What, what came first? What came first was the noise. The noise of a, a violent rushing wind. The original word, we get the word echo from. This violent noise, and quite a noise it was, because it drew out the whole town to see what was going on. Remember when the storm came through a few days ago? I was sitting in, in, uh, in my house, and I hear this violent rushing wind. And I dashed to the window, and everyone in the house looked outside, and lo and behold, we saw the physical evidence of a, what looked like a tornado coming through. It sounded like a, like a, not quite like a freight train, but very noticeable. Imagine the curiosity that would arise if I were to look out my window, and it would be a calm spring day or a calm fall day, with no leaves blowing around, but this mighty rushing wind coming into my ears. What a, an item of curiosity that would be. So much so that it would probably bring everyone out of their house to see what on earth is going on. Well, that's the occasion here. 
this sound that was overwhelmingly violent, but no physical evidence of a wind. No buildings being blown over, no trees turning over, probably no power lines coming down either. But that violent rushing wind was very much there, so much so that the, a crowd came together. But no natural wind blowing. So what did it do? Well, it filled the entire house where they were meeting and could be heard everywhere. Verse 15 tells us that it happened before 9 o'clock in the morning. And Luke tells us that the assembly was seated in that upper room. Now, it's my understanding that Jewish people stand when they pray, so when they're sitting, they were probably listening to a message or some, some uh, gathering where a person was speaking and they were listening in a sitting position. And this mighty sound interrupted the meeting as they were waiting on God. But what came next? After the violent rushing wind comes this fire, these individual flames, uh, tongues of flame, just like, a, like a, a burner, a candle flame, only bigger, that began to distribute themselves over the, the persons in that upper room. Visible. A reality. And again, no one is left out. All are affected. And we have to ask, is, is this, is this a, a literal fire? Is it, if I put my finger in it, would it, would it burn my finger? Well, the text says that these tongues were like unto fire. And that detail is important. We don't know. But to an observer looking at the scene, you would say, those are flames. I can see them with my eyes. Whether it's a, a literal consuming fire, I do not know. But it was a visible manifestation that would be clearly uh, patent and, and obvious to anyone who was there to observe it. Now let's note a few things about the wind and the fire. The word for wind is a most interesting word in the Bible. It's the Greek word pneuma with a silent P in the front. Pneuma. We get the word pneumatic, the word pneumonia from the Greek word pneuma. And it can be translated generally three ways in the New Testament and in the Old Testament Greek translation known as the Septuagint. It can be translated as wind, it can be translated as spirit, and it can be translated as breath. And it's, it's very interesting when we put these things together. Trust, trust me, it's very interesting. In Matthew 7.25, we read these words. Jesus, concluding the Sermon on the Mount, says the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds, the pneuma, blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. He tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the wind, the pneuma, blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. 
so is everyone who is born of the pneuma, the spirit. It's translated spirit. I just read it in John 3, where the wind blows and the spirit uh, gives birth to. But in John 20, verse 22, we read, And when he had said this, this is after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Pneuma, Spirit. It's translated as breath. In Acts 17, Paul preaching on the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he the Lord is of heaven and earth, Dwelleth not in a temple made with hands, neither is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives life and pneuma, breath, and all things. But, But most interesting, when we go back to the Old Testament and look at the creation account translated into the Greek language, We read this verse in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the pneuma of life, the breath of life. So what is communicated by this mighty rushing wind? It is the Lord himself who described the spirit as that unseen wind who blows where it will. This mighty spirit of God that is unseen but keenly felt as a mighty wind. He breathes into the church. And here's my main point. He breathes into the church the breath of life. Just as he did to Adam's corpse, he breathed into it the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. It's much like, if if you want a, a marvelous example of this, it's in Ezekiel 37. Now, you know where I'm going, right? The vision of the dry bones. You remember that account? Listen to this. And I will insert the word pneuma, where it appears in the Greek Old Testament. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel writes, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers that in the way that we should always answer God. O Lord, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones. And say to them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus the Lord God said unto these bones, behold, I will cause Numa to enter into you. And ye shall live and I will lay sinews upon you. And they will bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put pneuma into you. And you shall live 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied to these bones. And I prophesied there. When I, as I prophesied, there was a noise, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and flesh came up upon them and skin covered them above, but there was no pneuma in them. Then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, unto the pneuma. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the pneuma, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O pneuma, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the pneuma came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. Wow. Same word as in our text of that mighty rushing pneuma. What about the fire? God is often represented by fire. The burning bush was a representation of God Almighty unto Moses in the wilderness. The pillar of fire that guarded the camp and led them at night was a, was a visible manifestation of the Spirit of God. And the Lord descended on Mount Sinai as a column of fire. The eyes of the sons of Israel when they saw the appearance of the glory of the Lord, was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. As recorded in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. And this is exactly what John the Baptist preached, isn't it? Do you remember his introductory message to the nation? He says, as for me, I baptize you with water, but he is coming after me, the shoelaces I am not worthy to untie, and I am not fit, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat. There's the in gathering again on the Feast of the Pentecost. He will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thus the Spirit immerses, baptizes the church in himself. And it's made manifest to the senses by a, by a mighty rushing wind sound and by visible flames of fire. A real event had you been there in that room, you would have seen it, you would have heard it. It is a real historical event. In the Old Covenant, when Moses built the tabernacle and inaugurated it on that day, he was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of this, this cloud that filled the, the, uh, the building, the tabernacle, the tent. And his experience, Paul likens, uh, to an old covenant manifestation of the glory of God. And he asked the question to the Corinthians in his second epistle. 
how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious that what happened on that Pentecost Sunday is the fulfillment of, the true substance of, what the Old Testament just pointed to. We're watching these Old Testament truths find their New Testament fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. Paul says to the Corinthians again in chapter 3, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? And the very best New Testament text of this New Testament reality, I think, is in 1 Peter 2. Peter writes, And coming to him as a living stone, which was rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, brethren, you also are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. You see that New Testament reality of what we actually are? That's what a church is, is a temple of living stones made up of living stones that are laid upon a foundation of the apostles, the chief cornerstone being Christ himself, and energized by the Spirit of God. Well, now we come at last to the supernatural effect upon the congregation, and it's not controversial at all. It's very straightforward. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, if I ever come back, if you ever invite me back again, we'll go into that in some detail. I've, 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 I've got some uh, opinions on that matter that I think would square well with what the scriptures have to say, but we're not going to go into this today. We're, we're coming into our home stretch here. What's the true miracle here? A lot of people major on the minors of speaking in tongues, but what's the real miracle here? The book of Acts is chock-a-block with miracles, enormous miracles, Stunning miracles. But what is the greatest one of them all? It is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That almighty God who made the world out of nothing in the space of six days by his spirit would so condescend himself that his mighty spirit would actually come and dwell in us. That, that ought to strike us as the most amazing truth ever. That you and I and corporately together are a temple of the Holy Ghost. The very same being who made the world lives in us. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not the mighty deeds that the apostles did. Yes, those are important. They have a purpose and a place. But the real supernatural event that took place in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament is the Spirit coming into the church 
on the day of Pentecost. Not as an external teacher like Moses was, but as a force within, a driving power within, regenerating, sanctifying, and enabling. It completes the, the trinity basis of our redemption. My heavenly father planned my redemption and set it into motion in eternity past. That's the father's work. My savior bore my sins on his cross and validated that approval from God by rising from the dead. The spirit of God, my enabling power, sanctifies me, has changed me from within and changed you from within. The Father planned my destiny. The Son accomplished my justification on the cross. And the Spirit applies that salvation in bringing me to Christ and then sanctifying my sin-loving, filthy, lifelong record of sin and making me one who loves the law of God. But as Paul says in Romans 7, certainly without any proximity to perfection. It's the Spirit of God that does these things. It's not the presence in the upper room that saved those men and women, those 120 souls. It's not just being in that room that made them church members. It was having the Spirit of God in them, being baptized into that Spirit that made them Christians. In our day, we often think, we ought not think, but many often do, that just being in the church is what makes us a Christian. That having my name on a roll makes me a Christian. That being a participant in corporate worship on a regular basis makes me a Christian. Yes, those are all external manifestations, yes. And they are most important, yes. But that is not the defining thing. The defining thing is, has the Spirit of God come into me in the very same way, without the supernatural effects, as those 120 on the day of Pentecost? Yes or no? That is the defining principle as to whether we are regenerate or not. Not that our names are somewhere or that our presence is somewhere, but is the Holy Spirit in me. Paul says to Titus, but the kindness, when the kindness of God our Savior came and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not on that basis, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the pneuma, the Spirit of God, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus. So the question for us, brothers and sisters, in this, in this room today, 
is the spirit of the living God dwelling in me. Yes or no? Have I been supernaturally regenerated by his almighty power? Yes or no? Has the blood of Jesus been applied to my account by the very faith that the Spirit supplies? Yes or no? And am I seeing his divine fruit growing on my branch? Yes or no? Paul says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the defining principle is, is the spirit in me or is he not? What a pitiable specimen the church would be without the spirit of God. What would she be like? She would be like Adam's corpse, lifeless, dead, without the breath of life without being a living soul. That is what a congregation would be without the Spirit of God immersing himself or us immersed in him by his grace. It is the Spirit that sanctifies us. Think about this for a moment. The Lord Jesus came to justify sinners. Not so much to sanctify them, but to justify them. When when the Lord Jesus was with his disciples in the flesh for three years, at the end of that period we find them quarreling, we find them arguing about who's the greatest, there is an undercurrent of envy and jealousy among them, there is a mental dullness that is just appalling, it it almost reaches my level of mental dullness. And these, these disciples... Just don't get it. Yes, I believe they were justified. But not very much sanctified. It is the spirit that sanctifies. That is his amazing work. To make us more fit for heaven the longer we live. That is the spirit's work. If you are living according to the flesh, Paul says, you must die. But... If by the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Without the Spirit of God living in his temple, we would be that dead and lifeless body. We'd be like that valley of dry bones. Paul says at last here, our adequacy, very humbling word when Paul says, Paul, the apostle regards himself as adequate. Uh, Let us guard against exalting ourselves beyond the word adequate. He says our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not from the letter, but by the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And on that Pentecost Sunday... The church moved beyond the mere letter to grasp hold of 
and be immersed into the Spirit of God. The prophet Zechariah said to Zerubbabel, not by power, not by might, and certainly not by any clever invention of the New Testament church in the modern day, but by my spirit. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for not leaving us alone, not leaving us as a, an orphaned or even a dead body, but that you have made a magnificent promise through your Son to supply the Holy Spirit, to fill the church with the power of the Holy Spirit, to erect a temple of living stones who are embodied by the Spirit. Father, may this assembly, may my assembly back home, know that certain felt power of the Holy Ghost brooding over us when we gather for corporate worship. May that be our standard practice. May that be our comfortable habit. We thank you that not only is it offered, it is promised to us. And we pray that we might look to that promise whenever we gather together. We pray it might be particularly present today in Mebane, that you give grace to the mourning and the sorrowful today. Build up their faith by your spirit. Amen.